Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians? And here we arrive at the very end. The end of Galatians. I always, it's funny, anytime we come to the end, Anytime we come to the end, I always want to ask you guys, what did you think? How did we do? Was that good? Did you guys get something out of it? I trust that you got plenty from it. I know. I know you did. Not because of me. In spite of me, I'm sure, at times. We're going to uh, finish Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. And I know I said last week I'm going to read the entire letter, I don't know that I'll have time. And some of you are going, oh, thank goodness. And some of you, maybe we're looking forward to it. I don't know. But if we have time at the end, I will read the entirety of the letter. And if not, we would have read it over the last 12 weeks. So Galatians chapter 6, I'm going to read from the ESV translation. Um, it'll be up here, and it already is up here on the monitor next to me, beginning in verse 11. See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be on them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I could have easily just taught this portion of text as the kind of sidebar to last week, but there's a couple of verses here that actually for weeks now I've been anticipating um, and I've intended, I, I wanted to concentrate and land on them because I think within them, really they summarize the entirety of Paul's argument over these six chapters and really the, the whole thrust of his letter thus far that justification comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And Paul has been combating, if you're visiting with us today, the book of Galatians is a, is a letter of rebuttal against a false gospel that has infiltrated the churches in the pro Roman province of Galatia. And there were those who were outside of the church, those uh, of individuals from Israel who they've identified as Judaizers who have come into the churches and have said that, yes, salvation comes by faith, but in order to truly be saved, one must bear the marks of the Mosaic law or the, the marks of the covenant that God made with Moses on Sinai. And that was the marks of circumcision. And so in essence, in that context, what they were doing is they were applying a gospel plus human effort. And so Paul writes this letter to them. And as we've seen already, and I won't summarize, but Paul has just said, listen, it is not by works. There is not an ounce of your work that could satisfy in order to obtain the justification that comes from Christ. Rather, it is your faith and your faith alone. And Paul brilliantly and beautifully, quite frankly, traces throughout the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham, and, and, and refutes this argument that it is faith plus human effort. 
And so as we come to the end today, I want to look at verses 14 and verse 15. And as I said, I believe that they just summarize beautifully Paul's intent. And so Paul says this, again, I'll just read it, far be it for me to boast, far be it for me to boast, having just spoken of the boasting in the flesh that the Judaizers would want to have. In other words, see how holy these individuals are, and they would boast in the literal flesh, not to be crass, but the literal flesh of another. Paul is saying, far be it for me to boast, except what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In which on the surface it can leave us thinking, wait a minute, Paul just spent essentially six chapters arguing in favor of uncircumcision. And now he's saying, guess what, neither of them actually count for anything. And so as I said, it's important to remember, the reason that Paul has argued for uncircumcision is because of the argument in favor for But now what he's doing, he's actually saying, do you know what? Actually, in reality, in terms of your salvation and your righteousness before God, neither of them actually matter. None of the externals ultimately matter when it comes to being justified before God. And this is the key, brothers and sisters. Paul says, do you know what actually matters? What matters is understanding the significance of the work of regeneration within your heart. That is what matters. Living in the reality that you are a recreated being. You are a new creation in the language here of Romans, excuse me, of Galatians chapter 6. And this regeneration is a circumcision all of its own. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's an internal circumcision. And we're going to talk on that more and we'll see it similarly or shortly. But what I want to say to us this morning before we unpack those couple of verses, church, is that when it comes to the Christian life, one of, one of the things that we have spoken of a few times throughout the, the course of these last 12 weeks is that there ourselves, we ourselves combat and deal with false gospels. There's cultural gospels. There's gospels of the flesh, false gospels, if you will, ways that we try to add to our faith and add to the salvation that's already been accomplished by Jesus Christ. But I want to say to us today, brothers and sisters, there is actually no concern for us or fear that should reside within us when it comes to these false gospels, these efforts towards external righteousness. We shouldn't fear them. Should we be aware of them? Yes, absolutely. Should we combat them and battle them as they try to encroach into the church and into the places of our hearts? Of course we do. But we need not worry whether this thing or that thing will actually remove us from the hand of Christ because this is, this is the point that I just felt so strongly as I was preparing this morning. So long as we keep to the path, so long as we stay on the way that Christ has made for us, these externals don't actually matter and they are not of concern to us. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? I hope it does. Let me, let, me, let me rethink how I would say it again. I felt so strongly as I was preparing for this week, I began to think, because I don't want to seem to contradict what I've already said, where we've talked about, man, we need to be aware 
of these things that bombard us, these, these liturgies of culture that bombard us regularly. So we need to be aware of them, and lest we stumble. But as I thought about it, what Paul is saying is this, it doesn't matter what's to the left or to the right so long as you stay on the path. And that is Paul's point here, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter the the circumcision or the uncircumcision so long as you remember that you are a new creation and that you live as you were created to be. That's the key right there, church. I was thinking about, as I was just working through that thought, there's this... The, the children's rendition of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You guys know that story. Was anyone read that when you were younger? I was read it many, many times when I was younger, and we've read it to our children. And there's a portion of the story where Christian and faithful are walking down the king's way, and they come to this place called Bypass Meadows. And it's a beautiful meadow, and along the king's way, which is rocky and stony, and they're saying, gosh, our feet are sore from walking in the king's way. And to them... Is a, is a fence, and on the other side of the fence is this green path that is easy and that seems comfortable, and they say, man, can't we just take a few moments and walk along the green path and give ourselves a break from the difficult way of the king? And so they said, any, I'm sure at any point we can just jump back across again, and we get on the king's way. And so they do this, and they find another individual that they come upon, and they begin to walk, and they say, is this the way to the celestial city? He goes, oh yeah, this is the way that we go. Follow me. But it becomes dark. And as it becomes dark, they lose their way. And suddenly they hear a sound, and it's a cry from the individual up ahead who they had, could no longer see, and he's fallen into a ravine, and he's died. And I just thought, what an what a illustration that is of this truth, brothers and sisters, where it's, it is a difficult way, the king's path. But it is a way that is clear that has been forged for us. And although this and this might seem to be easier than the way of the king, brothers and sisters, these are the things that entangle us. These are the things that ensnare us, that trip us up. These false gospels, these cultural liturgies, these ways of the world, if you will, that seem to bring reprieve, ultimately bring destruction. There is only two ways, brothers and sisters, the way of life and the way of death that is outside of Christ. And there is only one way forward that is certain. And there's a saying in sports that the best offense is a strong defense. Church, our best defense is to live for Jesus, only for Jesus, and to love him with every ounce of our being as we saw previously, as Paul would say. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. We saw that last week, I believe it was. And so in this way, in these two verses, in verses 14 and in verse 15, Paul actually lays out an entire theology of the Christian life. What matters to Paul? There's only one thing that matters to Paul. And that is being a new creation. And if you've been a part of this faith community for any amount of time, you will have most certainly heard us use this descriptive before in speaking of the post-salvation Christian life experience as being new creation life. 
In 2 Corinthians, which comes later in Paul's writings, we know this, script, this verse well. Paul is going to speak on this again when he says that if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, Paul says. And then he says, behold, the new has come. What Paul's saying in these verses is that in the act of salvation, there's a recreation that which takes place within us. There is a recreation in the act of salvation that takes place within each and every one of us. In each man and woman who is saved by Christ, there is both death and a rebirth. And Rick said this last week. In fact, we were talking about this on Friday, just as when we were together as elders. He made such an insightful comment last week when he said that in the ways of the world, life always ends with death. But in the ways of God... Death always gives way to life. And how true that is, and we see that principle right here within this verse. What Paul is saying here is that the, and when he says that the old has passed, he literally means that we are now to consider the former or the previous thing as, as literally being dead, buried, and gone. That's, that is Paul's intent in that statement that the old has passed. I want us just to pause here for a moment, and I want us to think and really grab the weight of what this means. Before God had saved you, what sort of person were you? What did you live for? What sort of things did you love before Christ? And then I want you to think of how you behaved as an individual before Christ. What sort of things did you say? What did you do? And then I want you to think about those things that you probably necessarily don't want to think about. Maybe something that you have regret over in your life or something that has caused you guilt within your life. And what I want to say to you, church, is that right there, that is the person that God wants you to consider as dead, buried, and gone. That, that old Adam, the, the, the flesh that, that was buried with Christ Jesus, that was crucified with Christ, that was buried with Christ, and when raising, as Christ raised to newness of life, so we also raised to newness of life, church. Do you hear what I'm saying? And I understand, I understand that, that experientially, we don't always feel this, experience it. It isn't always true for us that there is an old man that was put to death. But what I'm saying to you, church, is this is what Christ says to us. That if anyone is in Christ, he is made new and the old is passed away. And then what happens to something that's dead? It's rendered powerless. Right? It has no more power once it has died. And Paul says this in Romans 6, and he, and he tells us that through our union with Christ by faith, as I just said, we were buried with him, and we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to what? To what? Nothing. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What does that mean? 
That means that your old Adam, that your fleshly ways literally have, the power of it is broken over you to live as the new creation. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. But remember what I just said ago. In God's economy, it doesn't end with death, it begins with it. Death gives way to life, new life, recreated life. And so Paul says, behold, look, see, believe, take a hold of. Do you not perceive that the new has come? That's what Paul says. The old is past and the new has come. In the place of what was, God has created something entirely new. In this new thing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, this new thing, it literally indicates in the Greek word that's used there, a creation of something that was previously non-existent. Your spiritual DNA has been recreated from death into life. Are you guys getting this? Yes. I, listen, I'm, I'm preaching to myself this morning because I so desperately want to live each and every moment of every day in the reality of this truth. Brothers and sisters, as I've already said, this is it. This is what matters in Christ. Understanding this because from this, everything else is built upon. This is another phrase that we have long said in this church. It is not a changed life, it's an exchanged life. Think about the difference between that. Not changed, exchanged. Imagine if you went in to get your oil changed and you're watching the guy out there on the monitor and he does nothing. Yeah, he takes the other, takes the car, <laughs> takes someone oils out from their car and puts it in your car. Listen, though, that's ridiculous, right? And then you drive around going, oh, man, I love my new oil. And you literally watched it all happen. This car's running great. What happens? It leads to the death of the car. But when it comes to the new creation, church, when it comes to being believers, we do it all the time. We live in the old Adam. When Christ is saying, I've made you absolutely, completely new, why do you walk in the ways of the flesh when I have literally brought you from death into life again? When I have literally exchanged your life for something entirely new, not only something pleasing, but something that is capable to live pleasing and in holiness and righteousness unto me. We do it all the time. We live in the old way. I do it all the time. I live in the old Adam. Why do I do it? It drives me nuts. Because ultimately, I do something stupid. God doesn't simply change our life like we go through our home and we freshen up the paint because it's scuffed and dirty. No, no. He tears the walls down. He rips out the old sheetrock. <laughs> he gives you everything new. And a fresh coat of paint to boot. And this is what I was coming up against. Listen, in my own heart, I was going, Lord, why? First, let me say this, brothers and sisters. This requires a revelation from the Lord. So I could stand up here until I'm blue in the face and I could say the same thing every week. And sometimes some of us will not actually hear it. Hear it. We'll hear it, but we won't hear it. 
Why? Because it requires a revelation from God. God, by His Spirit, has to open our hearts to truth. And He has to make it real within us, just like He did when He brought us to faith, when we knew that it was true, so He has to do it again with this. But our joy and our assurance is that as we seek truth, and as we speak truth to ourselves, we know that it is God's desire to illuminate that truth to our own hearts. So we don't have to worry about seeking, 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 and never finding because the promises of God are very clear in that regard, that we will find when we seek. But I just want to say for us, if you're sitting here going, man, yes, I've heard this, I believe it, but man, I just don't live it. The first thing I want to say is ask God to reveal it. Ask Him. Have you asked Him, Lord, I know that I'm a new creation. Teach me what this means. Lord, help me to walk in the newness of life that your word declares over me. Help me to live consistently with the truth of Scripture, Lord. Give me grace by your Spirit and empower me today by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Have you asked that of God before? Ask Him, church, and He will show you. The other thing that I would say is that we have to remind ourselves that this is objectively true. And this is where I think, particularly some of the younger adults here today, have a more difficult battle on their hands because of the the progressive cultural ideologies that have seeped in become progressive theology where there is no objective truth from time to time, That, that truth is subjective to our experience and or what we believe. And what I say to you guys today is, no, this is objectively true. Whether you experience it or not, this is true. And that's where you stick your foot, first and foremost, in faith. God, I believe that this is true. Doesn't matter what you feel. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter if it's lined up with your past experiences. What I'm saying to you today is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He or she is in a new creation. The old has passed. Your fleshly Adam is dead, buried, gone. And the power of sin has been broken over you. And you are a new creation. Something entirely new that was never there before. Now, live as though you are. And so this is what Paul is driving at here in Galatians 6. Know this. Understand its profound reality and live in the life of new creation. That's all that matters. Because that's what salvation is all about. That's what salvation has accomplished. And then it's funny. Me having just sat and said that and said that and said that. Then we, be- then we begin to think about circumcision and uncircumcision. It just seems silly. Whatever the, you know, whatever the, the modern-day equivalent to those faith add-ons would be, they just seem ridiculous when we think about it. it's just this, staying here, believing this and living in this. It's not about what, does, what one does out here. It's about what is in here. And this herein lies, the origination of the new creation life. I want you to turn with me, please, to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is another portion of Scripture, a text that we know well. 
But I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to listen to Ezekiel 36. I'm going to begin in verse 22. We're going to give a bit of a runway for it. I want you to listen to it now in regards to what God has done, what salvation has affected within your life. Ezekiel, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Now remember, prophecy has has multiple layers of interpretation, right? In terms of when you look at prophecy, it it isn't just a one dimension. It often has multiple dimensions to it. So while this is Ezekiel prophesying to Israel, we see the, the true Israel, right? The new Israel, that's you and I, we see the application of this prophetic word that Ezekiel delivers hundreds of years prior to the coming of the Messiah. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you, verse 24, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Think about that present application. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, capital S, different spirit as in verse 26. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's beautiful. That is regeneration foretold, brothers and sisters. That's a literal foretelling of the truth of new creation life that would come through Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says earlier in chapter 2 of Galatians. He says that I've been crucified with Christ. And what does he say? It's no longer I who live, the old man. There it goes, death. But what? But Christ who lives in me. Behold, the new has come. It's the new man. What counts now, church, is an inward circumcision, transformation of the heart by which the Holy Spirit turns us from sinner into something that is entirely new, something that is sacred and holy and righteous. He takes us from slave to son, from death to life. You are a brand new creation. Do you believe that? Preach that to yourself when you wake up in the morning. Say, I'm a new creation. Start your day by reminding yourself what is objectively true in this regard. And ask the Lord, Lord, help me to live this day as the new creation that I am in you. And now with this new nature, 
comes an entirely new way of life, new desires, new affections, new way of thinking, right? If you have been transplanted, if you will, if you've been recreated, it is not reasonable for us to assume that then we would take all the old things of the old man and God would apply them to the new man. No, there's a new way of living now. Everything is new. And now everything is brought about not by the works of the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit in your life. And that's what Ezekiel says as well. And this is why Paul says in verse 14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Christ. How can you and I take credit for such a change in our life? Can we? To be circumcised was, was to boast in the literal flesh, a change that was brought about by human hand. But with the circumcision of the heart, that great exchange that I've spoken of, it's the cross's work that has accomplished this. No human hand has accomplished this exchange. It's the work of the cross, and therefore, that is our sole and, and primary and only reason why we boast is to boast in the cross of Christ and what it's accomplished. And as wonderful as this is, that is not the only death that Paul speaks of here in these verses of verse 14 and verse 15. The first death was Christ. The, the death of the old man, which gave way to the new. But the cross has also brought about a second and even a third death within our lives. Let's look again at verse 4 of Galatians 6. And I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly, and we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. Did I say verse 4? I didn't mean verse 4. I meant verse 14. There's two additional deaths that have taken place. There's three crucifixions, if you will, that Paul refers to here in these two verses. The first is Christ, but then he says this, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the first death by which the world has been crucified to me. There's the second. And I to the world. There's the third. In addition to Christ's crucifixion, of which we are partakers through our divine union with him, Paul tells us that something else died that day, church. The first is that the world died to us. Now think about that. That might be as equally difficult experientially to live and walk out in as was the new creation truth. That the world has died to us. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that I've already referred to. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then what does he say? And the life that I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God, or I live by faith in the Son of God. It's a new, it's a new life now. Experientially, it's a new life. And I think that this is reasonable when we think about it. If the old man died and gave way to the new creation in Christ, so too should the citizenship 
with which this old man held give way to new citizenship, kingdom citizenship. The result of this recreation is a radical reorientation away from the world that is around us and to Christ and to his kingdom. Okay, think about that for a second. What does that mean? A reorientation away from the world. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live with Christ who lives with me. And the life that I now live, a new life. I live by faith in the Son of God. Away from the world and to Christ. Away from the world and to Christ. This means what? We don't look to the world for wisdom. We don't look to the world for guidance or direction. We don't look to the world for parenting advice. We don't look to the, to, the, to the quote unquote wisdom of the world for the answers to the Christian life. Why? Because it's dead to us. The world has been crucified to us. Can we find joy and pleasure in the world? Of course we can, because it's the grace of God manifest in the world. And we experience the grace of God within creation and within the systems that he puts in place. So it isn't to say that we have to just live in this, what is it like that, is it asceticism? Where like every, everything is, not, the only thing that matters is the spiritual things, is that right? It doesn't matter. But we don't have to live like everything is just, you know, gone. And, and, you know, like, um, oh, I read this story in one of the commentaries what was his name? I think it was Simon, the man who, who, this is centuries ago, decided to live his life. He wanted to live removed from the world, and so he built a pillar, and he lived on top of this pillar like 15 feet in the air, and then he realized he wasn't far enough removed from the world, and so his friends came along, and he lived 30-something feet in the air. He spent his whole life living. This is a true story. I think his name was Simon or Simeon. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, thank goodness. Everybody call Jamie. He'll build you a nice pedestal, right? I want my uh, chevron pattern, Jamie. <laughs> we, we can find pleasure in the world, but that's not the point. The point is that the world has nothing for us when it comes to the ways of Christ. The world offers nothing to us when it comes to the wisdom of the kingdom. The world's wisdom is foolishness. It leads to death only. The new way and the old way, they're incongruent with each other. Why? Because they wage war. What does Paul say? The flesh wages war against the spirit in our own lives. And if that's true here, it most certainly is true out here. In fact, it, it's not even that they're just, you know, ignoring each other. I mean, the world is literally pulling against, and this is what I'm going to get to in a second. It's literally pulling against the ways of the kingdom of God. Let me move on. Secondly, we're crucified to the world. The scriptures have a word for those who are outside of Christ. What does the word use? Well, there's probably many. Let me just tell you. We are enemies. That is the word that scripture uses. Those outside of Christ are enemies to God. Not strangers, not foreigners, not just passers-by, not distant relatives, enemies of God. Those who are actively opposed and are hostile to God, hostile to his ways and his kingdom and his people. 
enemies, church. The world despises the ways of God and despises the values of his kingdom and the people that are his, the world despises. The spirit of the present age is not indifferent when it comes to kingdom people. He's not. Satan isn't content to simply not interfere with God's plans in his church and just to go about his own thing. What is he? He's the enemy of our souls. He's the great deceiver. He's the prince of the power of the air and the one who holds hearts and minds captives. So it shouldn't surprise us then when we come up against a world that hates what we say and that hates how we live, that ridicules how we raise our children, where we spend our time, where we place our money, and everything else that we employ for the kingdom of God. It should not surprise us, brothers and sisters. And if you don't ever experience that type of of ridicule or opposition in your life, then I would say, look at how you're living. You might not be living consistent with what is true about Scripture. If we look the same, act the same, value the same things, desire the same things, teach the same things to our children, what difference are we? We're not. Here's an uplifting verse for you. Jesus says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus said that to his disciples. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. I'm sending you out, he says, like sheep among the wolves. What is that? Those who who are innocent that will be (laughs) torn to pieces, essentially. You're going to be food for the enemy. Martin Luther describes this this verse in his commentary on Galatians, which is really good. I, I had not owned it before. If you like own commentaries, buy this is like the one commentary that he's written an entire one on. It's really, it's really great. He says this that the world, the world is crucified to me means that I condemn the world. Think about that. Are we actively condemning the world? Not just in the things we disagree with politically. I'm talking about in in the things that we value. Are we condemning the world and its values? I'm crucified to the world means that the world in in turn condemns me. I detest the doctrine. Sorry, it detests the doctrine. Oh, I detest the doctrine, the self-righteousness and the works of the world, he says. The world in turn detests my doctrine and condemns me as a revolutionary heretic. Thus the world is crucified to us and we under the world. In this verse, Paul expresses his hatred of the world and the hatred was mutual, Martin Luther says. I, I mean, it's an excellent way of saying it, but, but like, we don't live like that, man. We love the world. I mean, there's, listen, okay, I know this has to be fleshed out, but you get the point of what I'm saying. There's things in the world that are wonderful that God has given to us to enjoy and to benefit from. I'm not saying we don't, but what, what Martin Luther is saying here is it's, it's the ways of the world. It's, it's, the, it's the spirit of the age that, that governs the hearts and minds of men and women that we, that we despise, that we hate, that we condemn. And those things come out in their values and the way that they live their life and the way that they pursue and, and achieve, seek to achieve things in life. The two are incongruent, brothers and sisters. 
The world considers us dead, so why is it that we cling so tightly to that which hates us and despises us so? Why? So the question remains that I don't know that I've sufficiently answered it enough this morning, although I've endeavored to, is what do I have to do to experience this new creation life? Well, the first, again, is just to believe in the objective truth that it is true about you, that you are a new creation. And then I would say this, as Paul would say, consider yourselves dead. Start there. Consider yourselves dead. Know that when Christ died to this world, you died with him also to this world. And with him that day was the sinfulness of every man and every woman. It died as well. Christ dealt sin a death blow, a literal death blow on the cross that day. And then when he rose, he dealt death a death blow as well. He overcame the power of death. And we were with Christ as we've already seen, as I pointed out in Romans chapter 6. I, I just, man, my prayer at church is that we would live in the truthfulness of verses 14 and 15. That we would live as people who are a new creation. That, not, not that it's just a behavioral modification. I'm not just saying live this way because this is the best, you know, this is right. And I'm saying live this way because this is life. I'm saying that we would live this way because in this is the testimony of the power of God, isn't it? This is what people are longing for. This is the answer to the pain and in, in this, in this, the marring of sin to the human heart and our consciences. And to be made new again, to be renewed and recreated. Church, we've already experienced it. And it's a, listen, it's a deposit even. And as wonderful and significant in the and there's fullness to walk in now, I mean, I don't even know what the final future reality of this new creation will look like. None of us do. But it's going to be flipping good. Isn't it? It's going to be amazing. And so my prayer for us is just that the grace of God would lead us into this truth that we would lead our children into this truth, that my children would live as new creations, even as teenagers. And that's the benefit we have of those of us who have come to faith through family at, from an early age into adulthood and, and, and now bring our children in the same way. There is life now. You don't have to wait till you're 30 or 40 and you have your own children. There is new creation life now to walk in that your peers need for you to live in. 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, the anxiety and the depression. The enemy is literally picking off a segment of an entire generation. Suicide rates, antidepressants, anxiety medications. It's rampant in teens and young adults. They need recreation life. Geo, they need you to live as the recreation, new creation life that you are in Christ. And Jackson and Ella and Grace, Jonas and Ronan. It needs it, church. So we need it too.